want to welcome you to the Choya Needle Show. Yay. I don't like to kill things. I found a scorpion sitting on the air mattress where Maria slept last night. I'm cleaning up her bedding and there he is, all bristly, pincers at the ready. I try to sweep him out of the door with the broom and he scoots underneath the baseboard, tail curled up like an angry fist. What do you do? Live by chance? Leave the door open and hope he exits gracefully? What if he scurries into the other room, burrows into our suitcases, or crawls into the pile of sheets laying on the other bed? Snip off his tail. That's where the poison is, and leave him defenseless against his enemies? What do you do? You get a sharp knife from the kitchen drawer and jab it precisely under the baseboard, a puddle of blood staining the sautillo tiles. I hate to kill things. Sometimes you don't have a choice. I'm sailing through the quiet air, watching all your eyes below. As I land, I whisper, come and get me. Then, stampeding thunder, the game begins. You will leap for me, scream for me, cry for me, all for me. I've seen you get kicked and bruised. I've even watched you bleed. Scuffed, dirty, yet treated like a jewel. I'm the only thing you want. All this adoration. But I can't help it, I tease. I go that way, this way, then pass through another line of hands, only to be barreled under stalwart post and kissed by grass. I'm stationary for just a moment before I am launched into the air. Later, you hold me for mere seconds before I am carried away by the hands of another. But I know, you always want me back. <laughs> I'm going to read a piece from Now Voyager. Um, this is an imaginary story about uh, an unspecified future time, not too far from now, when someone from another planet has come to the Morongo Basin and is looking around. It's called Future Archaeology. Attention, students. We've shifted to hover mode so you can observe the grid of a former human population center. This is an example of a typical desert town, as yet well-preserved, more or less as it appeared in the days before the last days. Those hunks of crumbling asphalt are what's left of their roads. Notice the corridors with downed power poles and transmission lines, when all the power they ever needed could have been drawn from their sun. The technology existed but they were behind their own times, clinging to an archaic form of capitalism that ultimately killed their environment. In this region, the death knell was draining underground aquifers and piping the water to distant cities. That water was what kept the desert alive. 
When it ran out, the locals had no choice but to get in their cars and drive away, heading for the coast where the water wars began. There's nothing here worth further study. We've seen it all before. Fast food signs, big box skeletons, gas stations, junkyards. We'll let the desert bury this town, let the sandstorms do their work, and concentrate on more worthy sites when we return from our home planet. With no survivors to impede us, the work will go quickly. from my first published work, <laughs> 24. Before us, there were people here before us. They left their marks to let us know they were here. Spirals chipped in rock, well-worn footpaths to the water holes, arrowheads and clay pots, baskets sealed with pitch, smooth round holes in granite where they ground acorns and mesquite. But they left no monuments to great leaders, no castles or cathedrals, no pyramids or aqueducts, only elusive hints of their long ago presence, gentle on the earth. There were people here before us. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Um, so this is a passage after the Traveling Symphony, the group of actors and uh, musicians do a performance in a town that they visit during the novel, um, and they meet a uh, character called the Prophet, who's quite frightening. The audience rose for a standing ovation. Kirsten stood in the state of suspension that always came over her at the end of performances a sense of having flown very high and landed incompletely, her soul pulling upward out of her chest. A man in the front row had tears in his eyes. In the back row, another man, whom she'd noticed earlier, he alone had sat on a chair, the chair carried up from the gas station by a woman, stepped forward and raised his hands over his head as he passed through the front row. The applause faded. My people, he said, please be seated. He was tall in his late 20s or early 30s with blonde hair to his shoulders and a beard. He stepped over the half circle of candles to stand among the actors. The dog who'd been lying by the front row sat up at attention. What a delight, he said. What a marvelous spectacle. There was something almost familiar in his face, but Kirsten couldn't place him. Said was frowning. Thank you, the man said to the actors and musicians. 
Let us all thank the Traveling Symphony for this beautiful respite from our daily cares. He was smiling at each of them in turn. The audience applauded again on cue, but quieter now. We are blessed, he said, and as he raised his hands, the applause stopped at once. The prophet, we are blessed to have these musicians and actors in our midst today. Something in his tone made Kirsten want to run, a suggestion of a trapdoor waiting under every word. We've been blessed, he said, in so many ways, have we not? We are blessed most of all in being alive today. We must ask ourselves why. Why were we spared? He was silent for a moment, scanning the symphony and the assembled crowd, but no one responded. I submit, the prophet said, that everything that has ever happened on this earth has happened for a reason. Memories. I'm writing my memoir. It's not that I'm so special, it's that I'm unique among millions. Everyone should write their memoir, for each is also unique among millions. It should be a tell-all. It should be about all the stuff nobody knows about you, all the stuff that went unsaid, was too embarrassing, or too bad, or too gross, or too insulting, or too unkind. Or, so exquisitely wonderful it made your heart sore, but there was no one there to share it with. Tell all about the people you loved who never knew it, and why you so resented some and wished them a horrible death. I'm writing my memoir. It's a tell-all. Well, maybe not the unkind parts. <laughs> Story about the survival of hope. It's called Desert Mother Home. The desert received me as if she was my mother, glad to see me finally home. I arrived missing my own child, my only child, off to college in his own life. I arrived as a lover unloved. The desert is no pushover. She will punish carelessness or hubris, she will kill and insist it's just her nature. I am guilty of so much, but she offered me refuge anyway. A mother forgives and forgives. My desert story begins in the humid suburban south. For years before I moved to Joshua Tree, I lived in a subdivision north of Atlanta. I'm originally from the northeast, but I wouldn't call it home. I moved to Georgia from New Jersey where I was a single mom and wholesale book buyer. A series of events shifted everything. 9-11, of course. My father's slow death from a cancer that never, ever relented, and my mother's subsequent flight. Not from me, but that's how the child in me felt. Children must also forgive. I married someone who felt like family and quit my job to focus on motherhood and one book only, the novel I would write. Most of our neighbors in Georgia were white, straight, conservative. I say it was 17 miles and 20 years from the city, meaning so close yet so far behind. 
I was advised not to bring up religion or politics. I was reminded to speak sweet, but that made my teeth ache. The things I care about, the things I write about, are not sweet. Like the lies of convention, the violence of silence, morality's gray areas. But I didn't want my young son to suffer just because his mom voted for Obama. I did try at first. I made small talk with fellow moms about the weather, the weather, the weather, as if we'd never studied things or traveled or worked in offices or shops or made anything besides babies. For me, small talk is worse than loneliness. It rained often there, booming thunderstorms, sheets of water that turned the air opaque, mold lurked. Fungi bloomed across our lawn, which, like me, did not thrive. My son grew up, my husband grew apart. The effort to behave became static in my ears, noise I could not escape. On my writing desk was a mood-lifting happy light, which did not lighten my soul deep knowing I am not happy. In 2010, I happened upon Joshua Tree. Everything changed on that first drive through the park's west entrance, that fantastic Susian dreamscape. Fields of Joshua trees and mounds of boulders. I was dazzled by that vibrant, endless blue sky and the surreal line of peachy tan rock that cuts across it. When I hiked, a lullaby rose from my boots. Home, 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 home. I stopped and listened to the pristine quiet, so absolute it was as if I had returned to the womb, the whole world muted. Then, individual sounds arrived. The cactus wren, like a motor, trying, then silence. Families of squabbling quail, coyote singing their welcome to the dark, then silence. In those boulders, I saw a mother, swollen with possibility. I saw her formerly molten state, proof that phenomenal transformation is possible. It is, in fact, natural. I wished for the desert to deconstruct me as it deconstructed wood, leather, steel, and sound. Desert sunshine became my favorite drug, and I came back often for a taste. I returned in different seasons, wanting to know this place. One winter, I climbed Ryan Mountain, I learned that sometimes bitter wind roars across this desert. I could make friends with it or abandon this stern mother who, I already knew, was no pushover. One hot July, I hiked alone to the 49 Palms Oasis. On the uphill return, I became overheated, disoriented. I knew I would have to save myself. By 2017, I'd written and published my novel, it was not set in the South, but in New York's Hudson Valley, another place I lived, which was not exactly home. By then, my son was 18 and moving into his freshman dorm. My heart swelled with pride, then clutched at the loss of him. I started a new novel, this one set in the suburban South. My words were reluctant. I don't think I wanted to write about that place I did not love. My husband did not love that place either or me by then. He left for better possibilities, and I planned to do the same. 
By 2017, many of my fellow moms were finally paying attention. Like women across the country, they marched and canvassed. They said they would turn Georgia not just purple, but blue. I told them I was already gone. I put our house on the market, and then the sky fell. A moldy roof shingle had developed a pin-sized hole, and over time, the rain did its worst. One day, we had a thunderstorm, and the pressure proved too much. Sodden sheetrock and insulation hung from a gaping, dripping hole like a mouth screaming, where do you think you're going? I stared up, the, up through the hole to the gray sky. I was dismantled. My wish came true. I left the South with a life edited down to its essentials. I had few possessions, few people, not much of a plan. Near Memphis, a piece of twist, twisted metal on the highway caught and tore the bumper of my old RAV4. One last test of my determination. I sped on, bumper flapping. Once here in Joshua Tree, I turned my face to the sky and got to work. The dry air roughened my hands like a fighter's, and that felt right. Words poured from me like sunshine. Within nine months, I published a chapbook of new stories. It was an easy birth. My life, like the roof, was ruined to be rebuilt. My past lay dead like fallen, skeletonized Choya, but Choya regenerates. New green shoots spring up from dead branches. The desert is a tough mother, yes, but she rewards those of us who are brave. She offers silence and light and the space to write new stories, our stories, but better, because a thing that looks dead may not be, or not completely, not just yet. Station 11, and uh, it's, it's really been a wonderful experience. It's been really great to, to, to go to all these different events, and Marie did such a really good job of, of pulling the communities, and, and there's multiple communities here. That's one of the things that we're discovering, that we think we know our community, but there's layers of communities out here, and uh, the uh, Big Read helped us to kind of all come together a bit, which has really been wonderful. So thank you, Troy and Needles, for doing this whole series of readings, and that's it. So, all right.